Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. For many people, the scariest thing they will ever do in their lives is any form of public speaking. And it seems like more occupations require good public speaking skills as a key selection criterion. Whether you're a manager, university lecturer or theatre or film actor, having a strong presence is more than simply having a good voice. It's movement, it's being in tune with your body, your breathing and every part of your physical makeup. Rinsky Ginsberg is a lecturer in theatre, movement and performance making at the Victorian College of the Arts. She has over 35 years experience as teacher, performer, movement educator and dramaturge in theatre education institutions and in the performing arts industry. She's had a long association with the Melbourne Fringe and was awarded the title of Melbourne Fringe Living Legend in 2016. Rinsky is currently developing her research into non-verbal communication, physical dramaturgy and the use of theatre training techniques for developing skills in teaching and learning across academic disciplines. Our reporter Steve Grimway travelled down St Kilda Road to the VCA to chat to Rinsky about her work in performance, theatre and acting as well as her storied career in the performing arts scene in Melbourne in the 70s and 80s. Before they began, though, Rinsky put Steve through his paces with some breathing and vocal exercises to prepare him for the gruelling interview to come. What do you want me to do? Standing up. Well, um, you, you've probably done some uh, breathing exercises. Just connect with... No, no we're not muscling the oh, breath. We're just, we're just uh, connecting with the breath, just uh, allowing your, um, your, the muscles of your abdomen to relax and letting the breath flow in through the nose, filling up all the spaces of your body, letting it release of its own accord. And then we could start with warming up the muscles of the face. So you want me, do you want me to speak as well as just, no, or just to move no, just literally in my mouth? See if you can just blow through your lips. That's it. You can play with that a little bit. Good. It's quite hard to do, actually, to have totally relaxed lips. Relaxed, yes. Mm. Great, that's pretty good. And now let's try a little hum. So, um, first of all, I'd like you to um, just yeah, rub your chest and just maybe give it a little bit. And just mm, bring your vibrations to your chest. to your lips, make your lips nice and soft because you've just blown through them. Feel the vibrations on your lips. So then we could just play with, you know, um, different kinds of sounds. Really, this is just like, I'm mashing a hole. Yeah, and I'm, the thing is, I have got the imagination to do anything but repeat what you're doing. <laughs> Riding a motorbike on the hills. <laughs> I think that's enough. Is that okay? Is there more to go? Oh, we can be here for hours, okay, yeah. really, because we have only just started. I think, I think that... It's <laughs> not my shyness. That's great. Thank you. That's very nice work, Steve. I think you're ready to go. When I was thinking how to introduce you, I did think about the word actor, and 
that it scanned better than performer, it has one less syllable. Um, but it occurred to me that there might be a considered difference between a performer and an actor. And do you distinguish between the two? Uh, I guess there's a fine distinction. I usually use the term performer in every circumstance. And for me, an actor really sort of is the uh, interpretive uh, artist. And the performer is not just interpretive, but generative and adaptive and creative in terms of devising new work. That's how I see it. And in terms of what we're, you know, at the moment, we've, this year we're starting two new degrees, two BFAs, BFA acting and a BFA theatre. And that's kind of how we distinguish those disciplines, if you like, that one is devising and you know, making new work and, in, and uh, generating material of all kinds. And an actor is one who is interpreting new and uh, contemporary and you know, historical work on a traditional level. And does tradition hold to this day? Is tradition changing? Is there less need for actors and more need for performers? I wouldn't say so. I think, um, you know, the whole craft of theatre really is about storytelling. That's at the very heart of it on a primitive level. We all want to sit around a campfire and hear people tell us, you know, things that we will never experience. So both, you know, historical and traditional and um, classical work has as much relevance today as brand new, you know, site-specific, immersive, ambulant, um, you know, private work does, you know, so that's, that's what I think. I guess, I mean, the first question is, how can you teach acting? How can, you, how, can someone else, how can someone learn to embody someone else? The first thing that you want to frame, really, to answer this question is that the processes of cognition, thinking, uh, acting and feeling all happen together at once. It's, it's not like, you know, I, I move without thinking and feeling. It all happens together. Well, at first, okay, do you need to have a thorough sense of your own body and mind before you can truly inhabit someone else's? The thing from my perspective, because I'm a lecturer in theatre, but my speciality is the actor's body. So I'm training or, you know, basically I think what I really am training is awareness. So that's your first, it's a cornerstone for any learning for an actor, is that the actor or the performer is going to replicate the behaviour of either real life or um, heightened life, exaggerated life. And so you want to be a student of your own behaviour. And the way that we need to do that, or, you know, the the, yeah, the way that it happens is that you start to distinguish what it is you are doing at any point. You know, really the breath is the key. You start with the breath, you're conscious of how your body moves with breath, you, you, you become conscious of the shape of your body, about your, um, your physical structure, how it goes together, how it moves. That's, those are sort of fundamental things to, to begin an actor's training. You start with the body and then you put the body in space, then you put the, uh, the body in space with action and then you put the body with space with action and text 
And in between all those, the things that are happening concurrently is an imaginative kind of fusion of imagination is happening with expression all the time. So yeah, that, that's like on a very, that's what I would say is fundamental practice for the, the training of an actor, as it is in a way for the training of any, any, any form that is interactive with the environment. Uh, sports people, they have to become highly tuned into their, um, the firing of their neuromuscular responses, how, how that happens, really training that, refining the impulse into action. And I guess that's, that's one of the things that we predicate all our training on, is the actor's body and the, the, both the functional instrumental um, aspect of that towards the expressivity. And you know, the, these days, in a way, um, I think actor training is um, is really vital because, and it could be, you know, you, I'd love to do it with all kinds of different populations, because as we become more and more or less and less physical in relation to the environment, and more we spend more times on screens, people lose the idea of space. I don't know whether you're having that experience of walking down a crowded street and people just run into you. Because it's like they, they can't imagine that you're real and three-dimensional because everything that they do is on two dimensions. It's looking at a flat screen. So that's kind of really very interesting and you know, necessary if you're going to inhabit live, live performance. I get a sense, though, that this is also connecting who you are very much internally and physically with a sense of empathy like there, there seems to be then it starts there but then it transmits outwards yeah one of the things that is primary for the actor is to be able to transform really into different characters or you know in different situations and so in a way there's a bit of a fallacy that acting is a natural thing. It's not. It's quite unnatural to be natural. It's all about pretending really well. So one of the things that you start off doing, as I said, is attending to how you are naturally and then beginning to have a sense of um, exploring uh, different qualities of how you engage with, say, weight or space or time. Time and space for me are fundamental um, areas of life, but particularly teasing out how an actor responds to constraints and um, invitations to explore facets of that is where an actor understands how the body can express an internal state and how their bodies can inhabit an, an imagined place that then the audience is uh, enlisted in. Does it come from the heart and mind of uh, the, the actor to, to, to pretend what is this other lived state or does there need to be a, a study of other people and the way other people are to really sort of do it successfully? Yes, simply, yes to all of that. It is all of that. Because in the beginning, it must be technique. 
you know, you, you have to be able to analyse movement in a way. That's one of the things that we do over time, is that the student or the actor begins to understand what they're doing posturally, gesturally, spatially, etc., etc. And then people watching an observation is critical because people are kind of crazy. They're stranger than we imagined, stranger than fiction, stranger than you can make up in a way. So to really understand that there is an enormous scope in the palette of how you would be posturally or gesturally. And you did sp- you spoke earlier about how training like this is an absolute luxury because I guess many of us don't pay that attention not only to ourselves but to the to the other we just kind of walk through life and see 10% of it 50% of it but not all of it that's exactly right so we're unconscious most of the time and in fact it's necessary to be unconscious otherwise if you were conscious of everything you did every thought you had you that's the definition of madness so you really you want to have that integrated and certain patterns and habits that we have in the way in which we move which we learnt very early on for an actor some of those habits have to be re um, renovated actually, so that they are not impeding the possibility of taking on other roles. However, you don't want an actor to lose everything because that's what makes them them. So it's a, it's a really, look, an actor's job is really hard. It is craft combined with practice so that all the things that we're talking about, the techniques, the analysis, the understanding, and particularly in roles, there's an enormous amount of text analysis and character um, uh, lists you have to make and objectives and, you know, all kinds, depending on which methodology you're using. But the actor who can fuse that over time with impulse, that's where you want to, to go. That is the, the virtuosic actor, is the one whose craft is now invisible and the, ability, the practice of lying is so kind of um, impulsive and alert. That's, that's what you're aiming for. I'm, I'm wondering how the teaching of acting has changed over the time that you've been doing it. I, you know, in some ways, I would say it hasn't, like hu- hugely. I think the principles of actor training are, um, what would you call it? They're fundamental and they haven't changed enormously. But what has begun to change is a real understanding of embodiment and that neurologically, all the ways in which you would train an actor are supported by current you know, neuroscience discoveries in neuroscience and cognition. So that's kind of really exciting. Um, and the true connection between the mind and the body is really the thing that is the tw- is 21st century. You know, when we, when I was first here as a student in 1977, um, child actor, obviously. <laughs> oh dear, that's very flattering. Um, but it, it, it was a Stanislavski approach, and. Uh, at that time, uh, it was a cerebral, um, a more cerebral uh, approach to the acting process than is the case now. Can you tell me a little, a little bit about your research? Because uh, I believe there's some sort of connection between acting and teaching and learning and how the skills of one can inform the other. There's a huge connection. My connection to that is 
in relation to what I've been doing with uh, lecturers and tutors in the university, really, I was approached by a, a scientist, really. He's a, a, a statistician, a brilliant statistician, who after 14 years of doing his bachelor's, master's, doctorate, postdoc, got a fabulous job in the university and the first teaching he had to do was in front of 600 people. And he's a, he is a, you know, a, a deep introvert. So standing there, facing this enormous wall of faces was just crippling to him. And he just had this suspicion that he needed training. Well, not just a su suspicion, but his sus suspicion was that actor training could help him. And so he and I got together over a period of time and created a bit of a, a, a grant. And we got a grant to start these workshops that I worked with a friend of mine who's a voice teacher and a dialect coach and accent coach, uh, similar age. We have quite a lot of experience together. Um, and so we began to take these workshops, actor training methods for lecturers and tutors, which over the last three years have been without any kind of publicity. They're just, they, they sort of roll on and they're really effective. So we've We've had the great opportunity to, to, to work with academic librarians, with um, School of uh, Biomed, you know, Anatomy and Neuroscience, Business and Economics, Computing and Information. It goes on, like, and it's really exciting because people, what we do in a classroom or in a lecture hall is interactive and in a way it is performative because you are the focus of how the information is being imparted. So in a way, it's kind of the corollary to acting. And it, it speaks to that probably one of the problems at the heart of a large research institution is that you have researchers, you don't necessarily have teachers. Uh, they, can, they are totally different skills. I'm, I'm really glad that that statistician has, has used his mind to realise he needs to train his body. He's such a great guy. But the other thing, you know, we're, we're lucky because quite, we're quite well resourced because there is the, the Centre for the Study of Higher Education and the Graduate School of Education is doing similar work. And, the, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's a known quantity, but I guess what I bring to it is an understanding of nonverbal communication, what the body is saying, really, and, and how to bring that under your conscious control and how to, you know, it be effective in in connecting in all kinds of different circumstances. And my colleague, Anna McCrossan-Owen, is similarly skilled. This does bring me to my next question, this idea of how you use your skills for good and evil and how you actually bring your acting into your life. No, are you acting now? Of course, yeah. Because I don't think you ever not act. Because different circumstances bring out different aspects of your personality. So it's like, you know, somebody says to me, yeah, well, I'm just not myself, you know, I, I, that wasn't authentic. And it's like, well, I think this is a little bit of a, uh, um, you're on the wrong path of thinking for me because if I'm uh, in hospitality and I'm serving you, I need to bring out the cheer, cheer in me to connect with you. You know what I mean? It's like, and if I'm talking to my dog, I'm a different kind of... So we have many... Uh, personalities in real life and so yes and but I consciously do it in class I consciously do it I will play because I'm basically an introvert I know it doesn't sound like it, but I am I'm very quiet at home I you know I'm 
solo most of the time. But here, I've got to, you know, be in front of 40 or 50 people and I have to, or even five in a room, but I have to motivate them and I have to be the sort of walk the walk and talk the talk. So, you know, you can't be kind of like just playing one version of yourself because you feel like it and, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's great, thank you. Okay, next. You can't do that. And that's something to recognise if you're, depending on the circumstances, even in something like this, I need to be modelling the the energy that you can hear over the the radio. I need to be modelling energy so I connect with you. And do you know what I mean? It's like it's a, we are interactive. Whether it's a one-on-one, a a small tutorial group, a computer lab, you know, a large lecture hall, you know, we... Those, there are zones of energy that are necessary and, and ways in which you um, can create connection, really. I want to actually go to maybe a negative view of the world of acting. What makes a successful actor as opposed to a good actor? It depends on your versions of, you know, what you, what you define success. Is, is success making a lot of money? Is it um, Hugh Jackman or is it... I probably was actually going towards that visibility, stability in life, your ability to act to make a living. I think the successful actor is the active actor, the strategic actor, who kind of like is really open and not selective in a way, because the more uh, experienced an actor is, the more he can bring or she can bring to the role. Acting is a lifetime profession. That's sort of the joy of it. It's, it's not just about it's you in, your, in the beauty of 18 to 28. It's, it's well, you look at Ian McKellar or, you know, some of our great um, Australian actresses, you know, really at the top of their game in their 60s, 70s and 80s. Even Robin Nevin, you know, it goes on. Robin Nevin, there's a whole stack of them. But um, they just get better and better with age because it's the depth of life experience and the complexity of, you know, our personhoods. Are those opportunities becoming more realistic as you get older? Because, I mean, not you personally, but as we get older... uh, there's always been that argument that actors is a young person's sport. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing that's so extraordinary about living now is that, there, that performance and acting can take many forms. So the actor can be an avatar. The actor can be, you know, if you think about Andy Serkis or uh, Cumberbatch's Schmaug, Schmorg, Smorg. Smog in the Hobbit, you know what I mean? It's like mo- motion capture, uh, web series. You can, you can create your own niche channel. Your personality can be internationally renowned. Do you know what I mean? There's many ways in which an actor, not just the conventional, uh, in a darkened room, an audience and, you know, a, 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 a text. Acting is everywhere, everywhere. And the, the successful actor can exploit all of those possibilities. And, and I, I would, I would, I would. And the, the successful actor is the actor who believes in training, I would suggest. Because um, you need to be performance fit. You can't just, it, these days, because there's more demand on you. 
in 2017, you created a you created a most fringe. Sorry, in 2017, I should have done those exercises. In 2017, <laughs> you created the most fringe show ever with a fellow uh, living legend, Ian Pidd. Um, what are the perfect or not so perfect ingredients of a fringe show? Oh, that is really difficult because the definition of fringe has changed over the years. Well, certainly the actual reality of fringe. So the definition of a perfect fringe show is surprise, really on a very simple level. You go to the fringe to see stuff you will never see in any other circumstance in the first instance, because it's fringe. And you'll see something there that maybe in another five years you'll start to see on the main stages because fringe is the source. That's where people get their first airings because it's a, you know, it's open to all and it's non-curated in the main. You know, there's some certain um, programs that are curated, but, you know, you get to see things that people, you know, like where you just go, oh, my God, I have never seen an eight-foot puppet doing that. Or, I don't know, I'm in a car and I'm going down the back streets of Kensington. And what happened then? Why is she running along the river? And has, what was that that fell in the water? You know what I mean? It's like, it's fringe just takes you on the most amazing journeys. You know, it's really, yeah. So I would say surprise is the cornerstone. In 2016, The Fringe made you their second only living legend. Uh, seeing you in that honour uh, truly warmed my heart. Here was a room of a few hundred people applauding madly, and they were madly in love with you. Um, my sense was that you had impacted kind of all of them, all their lives, and this, for me, reaffirms my belief in community and participation. Modesty aside, what was it about your contribution to the Melbourne Fringe uh, that elevated you in their eyes? Look, really, on a simple level, I think I've been around a long time. So longevity is one of those things. And look, uh, back in the uh, 80s, really, I was uh, a rat bag of a performer. When I I did my training here. But really, I was a terrible actress. Terrible with text. Absolutely terrible. So really, on graduation, if I was going to stay in this kind of theatrical industry on any level I kind of had to pioneer my way into performance what could I do as a performer which was where I began to um, find movement and emotional improvisation through various different sources and sort of like you know I just traveled and uh, worked with teachers I liked so very early on I I was part well I was an improvisational trapeze performer motivity was my form improvisational gymnastics and trapeze so that laid the groundwork for me I had you know my friends had been uh, subsequent friends were the people who started Fringe Network so you know we were in the parades I was just involved for a very long time and you know happily I've had this association with VCA over many years so I have had a lot of chances to um, to work with students and mentor them in some ways so I think it's just that you know strange and wonderful networks you know and part of that was when I was here as a student there was the big rise and rise and rise of well the rise and rise of um 
eccentric uh, fringe performance. So venues like Flying Trapeze Cafe had just opened. The Pram Factory was, um, you know, out of La Mama and uh, Melbourne Uni. The Pram Factory was rocking, you know, way back in the 70s. So during, I put myself through uh, my three years of training here in a number of ways. Firstly, I did a lot of hospitality, but I was a fire eater at um, nightclubs, and, and I also worked at The Last Laugh, which was, you know, a lot of us did, which was this fantastic theatre restaurant, really um, such an incredible institution that eventually led on to comedy festival. And, you know, it's a huge history. I, I can't, we can't go into it, it's just forever. I think these things are local they're also general. I mean, I really, that's the human experience I find most of the time. And maybe we need to go really local and really particular. And I think I need to hear the story about uh, a box of, uh, a, a bit of garbage and the last laugh. Oh. <laughs> no, okay, all right. Two visionary um, entrepreneurs, John Pinder, extraordinary New Zealand-born, amazing, amazing man. He really loved rock and roll. He started TF Much Ballroom, I don't know, back in the day, and he started this little theatre restaurant, The Flying Trapeze, which was a shop front in Brunswick Street. And then he palled up with a guy called Roger Evans. And Roger Evans was a graduate from the London School of Economics. And so together they created the Last Laugh Theatre Restaurant, which was at the corner of Gertrude and Smith. It was a big institution. Anyway, so Roger was the, the man, the business manager who, who enabled everything to happen and John was the dreamy programmer. And, but that was a marriage made in heaven. They were incredible together. And Roger was probably um, more, uh, what would you call it, bohemian and adventurous in some ways than John. So I remember we used to work, it was a big, you know, the, we used to have these long tables of people, big groups of people. And I remember coming up, there was like 10 of us on the floor, waiters. But I remember once I had this table and one of the customers on the table was, you know, imagine that it was a restaurant, it was just a theatre restaurant, you know, people had rubber gloves, you know, plonking the, 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 the chicken Marylands on plates, you know, there was no finesse to it. And you didn't come for the food, you came for the fabulous entertainment, you know, Circus Oz or, you know, it was just like, we had amazing entertainment, it was just extraordinary. Anyways, so I go out to, this, to Roger and I, he's in the booth and I'm saying, Oh my God, Rog, I've got this client, this is customer, and he's saying, have you got horseradish here? Could I have English mustard? And it's driving me nuts. And he said, okay, came out behind, behind the booth. And he said, who is it? And I pointed to this guy, I said, right, come with me. And he got another, another waiter. And the three of us took out two of the, you know, where we used to scrape off the plates in the kitchen, we took out these huge rubbish bins and Roger stood on the table, walked over and put both of these rubbish bins on the table in the middle of the auditorium and said, right, here's everything we've got in the restaurant, help yourself. 
and the guy walked out and everybody cheered. <laughs> he was so cool like that. It was just great. We could just do anything we liked, well, within reason. But that was, they were great bosses. We just made that place our own. We, we, used to have, we used to have, you know, nights where we'd decide on a Saturday night in between shows, Rog and um, John would get takeaway Chinese for, you know, be 15 of us. And we'd have like 40 minutes because shows. And so we'd be, and during that time, we'd all be talking about what we wanted to do. So some nights we'd have wedding nights where we all came dressed up as brides or pajama parties or something. We used to just, you know, we carried customers in. We, you know, we played with them. We, it was just a wonderful job. I loved it. I was there for a long time. So what seemed possible in that time that wasn't previously possible? Uh, look, that's in the days, you know, before insurance and, you know, being able to sue people. You know, it, the OH&S wasn't a major issue. And but that apart, it was a very adventurous time in terms of um, innovating in, in performance, really. And they were movers and shakers. Pinder, I think, was kind of a remarkable person. And, you know, that, that, and, and sort of spawned and came at the same time as a whole lot of other people, really. Circus Oz is born, was born out of Matchbox and um, the Pram Factory. You know, the Pram Factory was a kind of um, seething hotbed of radical politics and radical performance. You know, it was like, it was the, if you like, the cleaving of... Australia from the, you know, as a colony. We were coming into our own, we were making, and it wasn't just in Melbourne, it was everywhere. People were pushing boundaries on performance and in terms of writing scripts, you know, like just think about what, what was happening in the Artie Jack and Steve, Steve Spears and, you know, it was just all over the place, this sort of radicalisation and taking back of, uh, you know, the vernacular, our idiom, our, our manners, our ways, you, you know. Pram Factory, I just remember Marvellous Melbourne, or it was, a, it was an adventurous time. Are we still as radical? No. I don't think we're politically um, uh, motivated. We are in pockets. Because we now can select our tribes, in a way we can stay, we can, we, we, we've got our sort of genre sorted. We've got our little ghettos everywhere you go now. So you belong to groups, whether or not you recognise that, that are more homogeneous than, than diverse. So we actually have to bring back diversity, whereas once upon a time you had a neighbourhood, you had three generations of people living in a house. It's all changed. Those sorts of things have changed. Has, I mean, that's, that's society, but has the motivation of theatre changed? Or is theatre just a reflection of who we are anyway? It's differently expressed now. I guess what are the new frontiers these days, um, and I might have you know, gone off a little bit half-cocked there, because I guess what is radical in performance now, in a way, is the interdisciplinarity of form, the rise of colonising different venues, whether those venues are... There's a whole range of places now in which theatre can take place. The live art sort of um, work, which is an extrapolation from performance art in some ways, that's, I, I guess, where the, the frontier is now. That's the new, the, the new way in which the body can be uh, engaged in 
provocations, really, that where theatre and art, where um, film and art, where, where voice and the body, you know, it is a great time for those, for that, yeah, what I would say, interdisciplinarity. You spoke earlier about John Pinder and Roger Evans, but is the age of the impresario dead? Do we need them more than ever? Absolutely. Oh, and I don't think it's dead, no. I think the impresario is now embedded in, um, in, in different institutions and, again, expressing uh, the expression of the impresario is different. So now there are producers, really, who foster and animate work in the same way, or not, not in the same ways, but in similar ways to, to the impresario. Venues are too expensive to run um, unsupported. But there are, you know, some of the state venues, really, like the Arts Centre or, you know, um, City of Melbourne venues, even Malthouse, that they all have components where they are generating new work, you know, whether that's Darabin or Malthouse or MTC or... You know, and also within the institutions where the, where the people are being able to, you know, small laboratories are operating. Is it a case that the individual is now their own empresario? Yes, absolutely. We've had a DIY culture since the 60s, 70s, probably forever, but I mean, it's been more pronounced. But I suspect now more than ever, the business of the artist is owned by the artist. Absolutely. So you have to be digitally savvy you've got to be social media across all kinds of platforms of ways in which you can communicate what you're doing i guess was there any advice uh, that was given to you when you began on your path just don't do it (laughs) i don't think i don't uh, look that's not altogether true uh, but certainly actually it is true (laughs) It is true. Everybody talk, tried to talk me out of it. And really, I wish I'd listened. <laughs> um, so, so given that uh, we're now, we're, we're now re- reaching towards inspiration, um, is there any advice you'd have uh, for other performers and actors starting on their path? You want to make sure this is your thing uh, because it is, it's completely consuming. You want to work out whether you are called to do this as a vocation because it's heartbreaking if it isn't. I know that sounds terrible, but if you love the expressivity, you know, the possibility of expressing yourself on stage, there are many ways to do it without devoting your whole life to it. <laughs> That's what I would say. And you want to think, because it's a, it's a, um, it's a beautiful, rewarding, incredibly rich life. It's amazing on that level. But you might not make any money. <laughs> And, you know, no, but it is. It's an amazing... I I was talking the other day about what the actor or the theatre graduate from here comes out with. And really they come out with such a really humanitarian education. We educate the whole person in a way. And and that is the the metaphysics, if you like, or the, the metaphor for acting training, is that it educates you to the universality of our, our, our lives in a way. So next time I walk onto a darkened stage, up to the microphone, and there are 200 people looking at me, what do you want me to think about? Think about them, not yourself.
That's going to be quite hard. <laughs> well, I think that's the definition of stage fright is when people get just, it's like it's all about how you, how nauseous you're feeling, how sweaty, your, your awareness is all tuned in. And if you can tune it out, then it's all about how you get across to them what you think, what you believe in, and then they'll get you. Rinsky Ginsberg, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Thanks to Rinsky Ginsberg academic and lecturer at the Victorian College of the Arts. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on December 8, 2017. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by Arch Cuthbertson. Co-production by Dr Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.